Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Sam Beam, also known as Iron and Wine, is famous for his gentle vocals and introspective songs. You may recognize his music from movie and TV soundtracks such as Twilight and Friday Night Lights. The indie singer-songwriter is performing at Pullman Yards tomorrow evening with Andrew Bird, and later this hour, Iron and Wine joins City Lights producer Summer Evans to talk about the concert and his 20-year career. First, when Dr. Fahamu Peku became a father 18 years ago, the new role lit a passion inside him to pursue his dreams of becoming an artist. His artwork depicts both the joys and challenges of blackness. Fahamu Peku's latest endeavor is Black Boy Journal, a quarterly collection of images and writings by people who understand the experience most intimately. The first volume was recently published as a digital download. The artist joins me now via Zoom to talk more about the project. Fahamu Peku, welcome back to City Lights. Hey, hey, Lois, how are you? It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, likewise, a pleasure to talk with you. So, you are always in motion, it seems. <laughs> you are active as a painter, an academic, a multidisciplinary artist, a poet. What inspired you to create the Black Boy Journal? I was really inspired by just really thinking about what kinds of messages our young Black boys need to see and hear. There's so much in our culture and in our society that talks about the, the negative statistics and the challenges and the social inequities, but you know, there's not very much by way of affirming representations of, and, and not necessarily you know, something being strictly positive, but just 
you know, something that makes you feel seen. And, you know, I, I, again, as an extension of what I do in my work, which is, you know, complicating representations and stereotypes around Black male identity, the Black Boy Journal is also, you know, about presenting a perspective that is rarely seen and, and, and rarely discussed. Hmm. What would be an example of something rarely discussed? I think, you know, for a lot of Black boys, there, there's certainly that moment where you hit that kind of social wall where you realize that the world doesn't see you necessarily anymore, but they see your body, right? And then ultimately, the way they begin to treat you is based on their interpretations of what that body could potentially do. And, you know, this is often a really sort of coming to like coming to a realization, you know, moment, like an awakening moment. But there's not a lot that you see or hear where people discuss that really unique experience, right? You know, that's that's one of the things that, you know, has has always sort of colored my work as well, you know, the, the visual representations of, of Black masculinity, of Black manhood, and in, in this case of Black boyhood, right? They're often very flat and very specific to someone else's ideas of what that should be. I'm much more interested in, in trying to expand that conversation and, and then also give young Black men and, and the people who love them a perspective and insight that they're not going to get from a rap video or from, you know, a television series or something like that. Like, this is really, you know, an opportunity to kind of engage in this space, in this experience, in this way of being that is intimate and as unique as the experience is in this itself. I know that as a parent myself, and as a human being, I'd like to think, having heard about the talk, mm -hmm. quote, unquote, mm -hmm that Black parents must have with a child is simply horrifying to me. I mean, to take the innocence of a child and have to make that child aware that there are people who don't like you, who might hate you and harm you for no valid reason. Is that some of what you address in Black Boy Journal? Oh, most certainly. I mean, I think it's an opportunity to engage with these more quiet spaces of becoming, again, that, that aren't often depicted or represented. And your, your example of that talk is a really great example of one of those really intimate moments that, you know, in many ways really only happens for Black children. And especially for black boys, it's it's a conversation that I've had to have with my son as he was a burgeoning teenager. You know, had to talk to him and tell him, "Hey, look, you know, people are going to start treating you differently because of the way that you look. You know, you have a little bit of facial hair now. You you know, you're starting to broaden up a little bit. Like people will not see you as a child anymore. And unfortunately, you have to be aware of that. Like you have to shift." your movement. You have to learn to adjust and navigate yourself for your own safety. You know, it's, it's sad, but it's also a necessary experience. And, you know, unfortunately, in this culture, we don't have very many programs like rites of passage programs, which you might find in a lot of traditional 
African societies where when young boys reach that pivotal age, you know, they get to go off and learn all of these lessons, right? Like lessons about becoming a man, lessons about how to contribute to your society in a, in a healthy and positive way, how to relate to women, how to engage with other men, how to engage with elders and youth, you know, like you have these programs and, and opportunities that are built into cultures and societies that a lot of a lot of our young Black men never really get to experience in a formal way, right? You know, oftentimes you learn those lessons in the worst ways possible. And so again, you know, I think, you know, it's essential that we find ways of having these conversations. I hate to keep rambling on, but I, I didn't want to say, I, I, I don't think that this is like Black Boy Journal is completely a unique kind of thing. I think, you know, this idea of becoming is something that is often found in Black literature, you know, from novels by Richard Wright or Langston Hughes or, you know, even Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, like there are a lot of people in the literary world who do address these kind of intimate spaces, but it, it it's not always as accessible or as widely known. And so that's another reason why I wanted to do this journal. The cover of volume one of Black Boy Journal features an adorable photo of you at the age of, I'm guessing, six or seven. How old were you? <laughs> no, I'm actually 12 in that photo. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you look so childlike, fresh-faced, Fahamu. Well, at, at the beginning of each section, you include a photo of each of the contributors when they were younger. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to include these photos of the men when they were boys, including yourself on the <laughs> cover page? Again, I think it's, you know, we often forget that Black men have been in that space of innocence in childhood. You know, again, that transition between being a child to becoming a young adult is almost instantaneous, and we don't often get a chance to have that moment of, of reflection or even, you know, to have the reaction that you just had about <laughs> that photo of seeing these, these men as children, we forget that innocence in them. And so, you know, in this journal, I wanted to not only demonstrate that through words, but also through these images so that the readers can, you know, even if it's a young boy, he can see that this person who is now an accomplished adult doing whatever it is that they're doing was once a child like them as well. Hmm. The subtitle of the journal is Either They Don't Know or Don't Show. What's the meaning of that tagline? So that tagline is actually a a paraphrase from a quote from the film Boys in the Hood. At the end of the movie, Doughboy, who was played by Ice Cube, they're in mourning that Doughboy's brother was just killed in a drive-by shooting. And he and the main character meet each other the morning after in their front yard. And Doughboy makes a comment that there was nothing on the news about his brother being killed, right? And he says, either they don't know or they don't show what goes on in the hood. And so it's in this moment of mourning and of reflection that, you know, Doughboy makes this really, really sort of cogent observation that as Black men, we are ultimately invisible to society unless we are being depicted or represented as some form of a threat. There's no real compassion or care for us in the tragedies that could potentially befall us. 
Who are some of the contributors featured in the first issue? We have some really great contributions from fellow artists like Danny Simmons, who's a acclaimed visual artist and poet based in Philadelphia. Atlanta's own Charlie Palmer is a contributor to this issue. We have a wonderful piece by my good friend, John Good, who also has contributed a piece. And we also did a, an open call earlier in the year, and we had a, a number of great submissions from artists around the country. You mentioned Charlie Palmer. We spoke last year before his retrospective exhibition at the Hammonds House Museum. The poem in Black Boy Journal is by Shelley Dance about Charlie Palmer, and you have a painting by the artist below it. Would you read the excerpt for us? Because as follows. Curiosity used to get the best of him in good ways, searching, stumbling to find his way on a path he knew not. He longed for conversation. He longed for connection. He longed for being. He still does. Surely he longed to grow up, for manhood was his plan. Where did he go? His dreams were no longer his own. Deepest desires manifested as self-determination. Self-questioning questioned self. His growth choked out by twisted thoughts that shut the door to his heart. When did I lose him? He was taught to be bold, to make his mark. Creative tenacity masks creative tension. You see, it's easier to be a creative version of him as me. The question is not as much when did he turn, but when and why did I? When did I become so damn serious? Being true to self is actually a facade of my brokenness. Pride covered up my cries. I realized I've protected his vulnerability by hiding in plain sight of myself. The identity of me is at a breaking point. Our heart blackened by the hurts. I am he, he is me. I've robbed part of my royalty. At last, here I be calling him forth. The longing to hold him for the first time in this life. We are what we were when we were children. Mm. Shelley Dancy's poem about Charlie Palmer. How does the painting relate to the poem? I love that you have these color bars that overlay the, the figure of this child who is uh, seemingly floating by. But these color bars kind of look like distortions, right? That might happen like if you're, you know, if your television or your computer screen is glitching. And I like to think that these distortions are all of the different kinds of influences and ideas and things that get projected onto this black boy. And then, you know, ultimately disguising and, and hiding the child beneath. And so, you know, for me, there's this, this tension between the boy and, and these distortions representing, you know, the way that the world sort of, you know, can come in and strip away that, that innocence and, and childhood. Uh, and you're forced to kind of navigate your way through. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is artist Dr. Fahamu Beku. We've been discussing his new project, Black Boy Journal. One of the pages in the journal is titled The Game, in case you missed it. 
Why did you want to include these pieces of advice? Uh, this is something I came across online many, many years ago. And I always thought it was a really great collection of tenets or, or rules that every man should know. Things like always look a person in the eye when you talk to them. Buy a plunger before you need a plunger. You know, always give a firm handshake you know, compliment her shoes, uh, never take her to the movies on the first date. Like, you know, these are things that I feel like are, are great ideas to, to pass down to a young man, things to keep in mind, things to remember. It's like uh, tools in a toolbox to help prepare you to, to move through the world. And they're universal, that, that it doesn't matter, you know, who you are or where you came from. These, these things are all applicable. I mean, they're, they're all qualities that I think every every man should at least aspire to possess. Hmm. The paintings by Martin Mbugwa are breathtaking. Yes. Would you describe their appearance, what they represent, and also please help me with the pronunciation of his artist's name? Yes, Martin Mbugwa. And he go, goes by Tuscago? Yes, Tuscago. Uh, and this is one of the um, artists who responded to our open call. And he submitted these two paintings. The first painting shows a figure almost like Icarus. You know, so a black male, his wings, one wing is broken and the feathers are, are gone. And it's just, you see just the bone. And he describes this work as a fallen angel but at the same time, someone who's in the process of, of discovering their power and attempting to recover their power. The second piece is very reminiscent of The Last Supper. It's a series of the artist himself and um, self-portraits sitting around a table with another figure, which is also the artist's self-portrait, laying on the table as if he's about to be consumed. This image for me really kind of made me think about you know, the process of therapy, you know, of examining oneself and finding ways to take parts of yourself that have been missing or broken or misplaced and, and being able to sort of like uh, reassemble or remember oneself. Um, so I saw in this image, uh, you know, again, this, you know, idea that a lot of what happens to us in the world is we sort of become fragmented about who we are, about what we are, about what we can become based on the sort of impositions that are projected onto us through culture and society, the necessity of doing the work of unpacking all of those things to find yourself again. You've written two stories that appear in the journal. The first is about the time you went to pour concrete with your uncle on a job site and suffered heat stroke. That's, <laughs> that was scary. And the second story is about, I'm glad to hear you laughing, Father. The second story is about a conversation you had with your grandpa mm -hmm. one Sunday afternoon. Why do those two experiences still resonate with you today? <laughs> well, the, the story about the concrete is one of my favorite stories to tell. It was a tough lesson to learn, but has proven to be critically essential to not only my livelihood, but just to being in the world, period. To kind of summarize, you know, I was invited to work with my uncle um, 
doing this job pouring concrete as I prepared to leave my hometown to move to Atlanta to go to college. And it's one of those really sort of like laborious backbreaking jobs. And, you know, within an hour I was back home, I, I just couldn't hack it. And my uncle, you know, that night he told me, you know, I, I knew that you weren't cut out for this kind of work. I knew you weren't going to be able to handle this kind of work, but I wanted you to get this lesson. I wanted you to know when you go off to school and you, you know, decide you want to goof around or, you know, start messing around with drugs or doing something stupid, that this is what you have to look forward to, right? Like my uncle was someone who had lived a really rough life, you know, struggled with alcohol and drug addiction and all these kinds of things. And so this was the only kind of option left for him. But he was like, you know, you have a choice. You belong somewhere in an air-conditioned room with your feet under a desk. And so just remember, you. this is what you have to look forward to when, if you don't take your opportunities seriously. And I, and I always remember that those words rang like a church bell when he said it. Like, and I can remember times when I was in school and I was not performing to the best of my ability. And the, the memory of the weight of that sledgehammer or that heat stroke would jolt me back into attention. That lesson really stayed with me, um, as is evident from its inclusion in the journal. Like, it stayed with me my entire life. And Grandpa on a Sunday afternoon? Yes, and my, my grandfather was probably one of my most favorite people in the world. Not a very talkative person at all. So when he did speak, you know, everybody kind of paid attention. But, you know, again, just before I was leaving to go to college, he asked me to tell him what it was that I was going to be majoring in. And I told him I was planning to major in animation. And he said, well, you know, I don't really know very much about that. But what I do know is whatever you do in life, be the best at it or else you're wasting your time and everybody else's. And that also really resonated with me when, when he said that. And I've always tried to follow that advice and, you know, put my best effort in everything. Um, not just because he asked me to, but also as a way of honoring him. He was one of the best people that I knew. You know, he was hardworking, he was kind and generous, and, you know, he was just a beautiful person. Um, and so in many ways, following his advice is my way of also honoring him, you know, following in his footsteps. So. You had two powerful role models there. Yes, most certainly, most certainly. And, I, you know, I, I'm always really, like, cautious, you know, to talk about things like that, because I didn't really grow up with a lot of male influence around me. But those two moments, you know, as rare as they were, were deeply, deeply, deeply resonant for me. Oh, wow. Fahamu, do you see Black Boy Journal as an ongoing project? Or do you have a set number of issues or volumes in mind? No, I see it as an ongoing project. You know, I'm really looking forward to continuing to to develop it with the hopes of actually being able to have it as a printed volume in the near future. But it's also a great opportunity for me to engage with other Black men who are doing great things in the world as well. So, you know, for our next issue, um, I've tapped our good friend Carlton Mackey to be the guest editor for volume two. So, you know, my plan is to, you know, continue to engage with, you know, my colleagues and 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Contemporaries you know, variety of, of fields to have them, you know, contribute as guest editors and, you know, pull together these themes and ideas. Cause I don't want to make it seem like it's something about me. Like it's, I really see this as an offering to my community. Artist Dr. Fahamu Peku, volume one of his new project, Black Boy Journal, is available for download. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Sam Beam, the musician also known as Iron and Wine. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Say it's here where our pieces fall in play. Any rain softly kisses a summer face. Anywhere means we're running. We can sleep and see them coming. Where we drift and call it dreaming. We can weep and call it singing. Sam Beam, also known as Iron and Wine, is famous for his gentle vocals and introspective songs. You may recognize his music from movie and TV soundtracks such as Twilight and Friday Night Lights. In his career of 20 years, Iron and Wine has also been nominated for four Grammy Awards in both the Americana and folk categories. The indie singer-songwriter will perform at Pullman Yards tomorrow evening with Andrew Bird. Earlier this week, he joined City Lights producer Summer Evans and began by talking about how Ben Bridwell, the frontman for Band of Horses introduced him to Sub Pop Records. Ben and I grew up together in Columbia, South Carolina. His older brother is one of my best friends. And so I had known Ben forever. And he had moved out to Seattle with his band and they were recording music and just, you know, being part of that scene there. And so inevitably they ended up bumping into Sub Pop Records. And um, I was you know, just doing stuff for fun, you know, in my spare time. 
recording music and writing songs and just keeping up with Ben because that's how we stayed in touch. When we were together, we would exchange music. You know, have you heard this or have you heard that? Because we just both, that's what we loved. And so um, when he moved out there, we just kept it up. We would send each other other people's music. We would send each other music that we were working on. So it was in, my stuff was in his ear. And when he um, was talking to Sub Pop, you know, being the magnanimous, incredible person he is, he just, you know, said, here you go. I want to see what you think about this. And they called me. Wow. What a great friend. (laughs) I know. The best one I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, to get picked up by Sub Pop Records, that's pretty wild because in case people don't know, they were central to the grunge movement with bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Mudhoney. Um, I know. You know, I knew, I was very familiar with what Sub Pop was. I was just shocked that they were calling me, <laughs> given what I was making. I was like, you sure you have the right number? But then they sent me other things they were putting out, you know, like the Shins and some of Rosie Thomas's music at the time and Damien Gerardo's music at the time. Um, and it, it made sense. And no one else was knocking. so did you ever feel that you had to follow suit with the grunge punk scene or (laughs) well that's what i mean i mean by the time they called me i feel like they gave me you know those records that i mentioned they gave me evidence that they were still doing heavy music but also shifting doing other things but i also you know over the years they had put out some other kind of kind of quieter things not much but some they were starting to branch out yeah yeah i read that you came up with your moniker iron and wine from a dietary supplement (laughs) is this true what's the backstory well i was working i'd never heard of this stuff but i was working on a film you know in the late 90s a student film in um south georgia you know one of those like gas station country store kind of combos <laughs> very familiar and they had yeah you know what i'm talking about. and they had this <laughs> stuff on the shelf called beef iron and wine i just thought that was such a weird combination of words i had no idea what it was but you know it was like some kind of supplement people drank you know along the lines of like castor oil and things like that that part snake oil part total placebo maybe <laughs> hopefully <laughs> but um i don't know for some reason the combo of words just stuck in my head and so when it I don't know. They rumbled around in my in my brain for a while until it came out on a on a cassette, written handwritten cassette somewhere. <laughs> and you didn't want to keep beef in front of Iron and Wine. <laughs> yeah, let you let you wonder why. <laughs> leave, leave it a, leave it a mystery. Yeah. Why did you not want to go by Sam Bean when you were starting out? Uh, you know, I just thought that was boring on a on a marquee <laughs> or, or on a handwritten cassette. Sam Bean didn't have the ring that iron and wine in and you know they also it kind of encapsulated what i felt like i was trying to do with the music you know sort of embracing these contradictions that life presents us with mm. most of your personal life is kept offline when i was looking through your social media and stuff you're yeah. relatively a, yeah <laughs> you pride yourself in being a private person was that a challenge for you when you started to make it big in this industry uh no, I just don't run my mouth, <laughs> and I don't 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 post very much online. I value being able to escape. I like being successful, but I don't necessarily like being recognized all the time. You know, it's just annoying. There's a big value in being able to hermit away and concentrate and get work done. I'm I'm always happy when I'm working, and so um that's where I get the most done in private. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to not always be in the spotlight probably helps with your creative process as well. It does, Brian. I mean, some people are different, though. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, they thrive on that kind of energy and they write about it. That's what they are into. But mine comes from a different place. Yeah. Let's talk about your writing process. Speaking of, a lot of your songs are very introspective and reflective. How do you decide what you want to focus on in your music? Uh, I don't. The moment that I have decided, I usually try to wiggle out of it. <laughs> I don't know. It's um, it's a funny engagement. There's no real right or wrong answers getting into it. It's just, you know, suiting my taste at the moment. And so a lot of the times you're, you know, it'll start with the melody. You know, I'll just be fooling around with the guitar and or the piano or something and come up with the melody. And then you start scatting gibberish you know just humming a melody and sometimes a word will pop out and and you kind of build it from there it's very rarely that i start with like you know this song is going to be about the complex relationship between me and my mother or something like that you know so you start sewing in phrases into this melody and then you let your mind wander again and see what other lines or words might play well with the lines that you have so far and then you it's kind of like painting you know you just sort of make some marks and then you either erase them or paint on top and you know by the end you ended up somewhere that you didn't expect hopefully I also sometimes, to be honest, sometimes you're just playing a rhyming game, which is feels lame at the time when you can't feel a good rhyme. <laughs> but uh, you be, it's also gets you out of a jam every now and then. That's true. That's true. Last year, you released Archive Series Number Five, Tallahassee Records. These are some of your first recordings from 1998 and 1999. How did it feel to listen back to these songs and release them 24 years later? It's a kick in the head. It's really bizarre. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of used to it. We've been doing the archive series for a little while now. And the first one was a real kick in the head because I hadn't listened to stuff for, for ages and ages. Did you cringe but, um, at all listening back to it? Or were you uh, like, what? You know, not so. I mean, I feel like if I had done it maybe 10 years, you know, when I was really hard set on creating like some musical identity and like really like etching out my what I thought was the only I could write. You know, some ridiculous idea like that that I had, you know, as I was starting out. Um, I think I might have been a little bit more hesitant. But at this point, it's kind of like looking at old high school photos. You know, you can just laugh about, oh, check out, you know, the, the way the hairdos at the time, <laughs> you know, where I feel like the distance probably helps. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that felt very nostalgic listening back to them. It does. Um, you know, whether I like the song or not, it's really fun to just listen and say, oh, wow, who was I back then? Who wrote that song? Because I mean, half of them, I don't even remember writing. You know, you just like finding a photo book that you didn't know existed. It's full of pictures of you. It's pretty fun. Did you always know you wanted to go back and release those recordings one day? Uh, no, I didn't. I just, you know, I just like moving forward. Even today, I, don't, I just 
always looking around the corner trying to figure out what you're doing next that's more interesting than looking back but at the same time you know we had people a lot of the material had been out on the internet early on from either friends that i shared it with or you know whatever so fans had access to it you know at some point or another and everybody was always asking about these songs and they were just laying on the shelf so you might as well do yeah. something give them a new life exactly were any of these songs on this archive series or in the previous one through four, one of the songs that you sent to Sub Pop? Uh, probably. I, I can't remember exactly which they must have been because I sent them a bunch of stuff and they didn't all make it onto the, the record. So, yeah, probably. I can't really remember what I sent them. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any songs in particular that you really enjoy performing off of this new number five series? I've been performing a couple of them. Uh, there's one called Why Hate the Winter, which is kind of a sweet little unnecessarily complicated song. There's a high-speed chase on the TV set And I think to myself Yeah, that's the one I've been doing the most, and it's it's kind of fun because it's pretty quiet. Yeah, and you know, it reminds me of your 2005 song, Make It As We Came. She says, wake up, it's no use pretending, I'll keep stealing, breathing her. It's so interesting that these were some of your earliest recordings because it's evident that you already had your sound. Right. Yeah. I don't really know what I'm playing. I, I just play by ear. I mean, I've learned some chords since putting out records for a living, <laughs> but I didn't really know what I was playing before. So the sound is just the sounds that I found, you know, so it's just going to sound like me because uh, I don't, I never took lessons or anything like that. So it's hard for me to sound like other people. Yeah. So you and Andrew Bird are currently on tour for the Outside Problems tour. Have you two worked together before this tour? No, never. Um, I mean, I was, I was, you know, super familiar with his music. I'm a big, huge fan. But, you know, it's just one of those things where he's busy and I was busy. And we just never crossed paths. So this was a, this tour was supposed to happen with Bird and me and uh, Calexico back right, right before the pandemic we were gonna tour together that summer before times <laughs> right uh, and then all that happened which is still happening i suppose so those plans got curved and Co got busy but we had played one show together in boston that fall before and then um and it was super great his band's incredible and 
you know, Bird's just so, know, he's so musical. It's kind of gross. <laughs> he's too talented. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I'm talking about. Like, so effortlessly son- sonorous. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm teasing. He's, he's fantastic. And so we do a couple songs together and, you know, he'll play my songs and I'll play his songs. It's fun. How do you think each of your artistic styles complement one another? Well, I mean, I think we draw from, I think our record collections are probably pretty similar. <laughs> For one reason or another, we're drawn to sort of this folk structure. I mean, but we also enjoy punk rock. We enjoy world music, for lack of a better term. I don't know. I just think there's a similar curiosity. He definitely comes from a very different musical background than me. I mean, he's a classically trained you know, violin savant. I don't know what you, whatever you call it. Virtuoso. <laughs> I'm sure virtuoso. Exactly. It's very virtuosic. <laughs> and that's kind of the opposite of me, you know, who's just sort of fumbling around and working really hard on the words, but just trying to get by on the guitar. But it's somehow, you know, when we play, I feel like the songs feel like they're from the same cloth, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I should have asked you in the beginning. I know you said that you didn't have any formal training. How did you get into music and performing? I mean, I always loved music. I mean, even I went to art school and everybody, we didn't really talk about art. We talked about music. And so I was always really into it, but I didn't have any training. But my dad had an acoustic guitar, you know, that he got I, you know, sometime in the early 80s, I think, but just sat in the closet. And so I started fooling around with that. and. One thing led to another, honestly. But I never played shows. I didn't, um, you know, it was just strictly a hobby kind of thing. I I didn't play shows until I actually had a record out. (laughs) Oh, I bet that was a nerve-wracking experience getting on stage the first time. (laughs) Definitely. It was not my idea of fun, but I also, it was exciting, though, too. Yeah. So I was introduced to your music through your song, Flightless Bird and Such Great Heights. Both songs, along with uh, several others that you have, have been featured both in TV shows and in movies. What was your initial thought when you were asked to have your song, Flightless Bird, be a part of the soundtrack of a teenage vampire movie, Twilight? At the time, I was, whatever came along, I was like, yeah, hell yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, I, I love participating in that way as my artist ego loves to be stroked it's is a you know it's a it's a nice <laughs> it's a nice pat on the back so it was super exciting i had never heard of those books my friend Stuart at sub pop records i think he's the one who called me and said i think this is gonna i think this is really gonna happen so i was excited yeah i had no preconceived idea what it was going to be or how they're going to use it or i was just glad to be a part of it i was a quick What's next for Iron and Wine? Is there going to be a archive series number six? I'm sure there will be. I'm not exactly sure when it will be out, but there, we've got plenty more stuff to bless the world with. Next for me, I'm going to do some more touring with, with Andrew through the fall and then 
I'm going to go into the studio in the new year, early part of the new year, and record some new stuff. It's been been quite a while. There's a small, a short record of songs, Lori McKenna's song. There's an artist named Lori McKenna that I really like. I recorded some of her songs. That'll come out pretty soon. Still finishing up a concert movie that we made. I think that does it. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Beam, the singer-songwriter known as Iron and Wine. He and Andrew Bird are performing at Pullman Yards tomorrow evening. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts. Today, featuring the metal artist Karina Sephora, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. I'm Karina Sephora. I'm a metal sculptor and mixed media artist. I specialize in blacksmithing and working with metal. I utilize repetitious imagery of trees, ladders, nautical and celestial atmospheres to explore emotion, memory, and ritual. These references to the natural world also convey loss and transformation and an attempt to bring order while embracing the chaotic. My first beginning start with any metal work was when I was about five years old and my father was always building something and I would follow him out to the workshop and help out. I probably got in the way more than I helped, to tell you the honest truth. But I had my own welding helmet and I called welding the electric lightning. I had a second father and he was a boat builder, so there were always boats being built around and my grandfather was a sea captain, so there were oftentimes sea voyages as a young child. Uh, my family was from New York City, but I grew up in rural New Hampshire. The smallest property we lived on was 42 acres. So there was a lot of time playing in the fields, in the forest. My favorite game was to make little boats out of leaves and natural objects that I found and float them down the water. I moved to Atlanta in 1996, and I moved here after I graduated from Massachusetts College of Art in Boston. I thought I was going to live here for two years and then move to the West Coast. Although I feel my heart is oftentimes on those uh, beautiful coastal lands, there's something where I've, I've put my roots in here in Atlanta and I've called it home for over 25 years. There's been a lot of influences, sometimes being in a landlocked city and being a person who loves the waters has influenced me. And the people, the community here. I have grown to love the arts community and my peers. I think the art scene is one of the biggest influences for me here in Atlanta. I'm also very influenced by uh, the Cherokee and Creek people who uh, at one time walked on these lands. I recently made a sculptural 
piece for the city of Roswell, a sculptural bike rack, and it has the Cherokee Rose, which was the, the symbol, is the symbol for the state of, of Georgia. And in uh, certain tales, it says that it's the tears of the women as they were walking on the Trail of Tears, and they turned to these beautiful uh, white roses. I like to, when I have some materials, I like to use it all the way up till there's nothing left to use. And I find there's a relationship between the materials together. For instance, I recently had a lot of bronze water jet cut from a plate of steel. And the cast off, I use as a template or as a stencil for a series of paintings. I'm very inspired by nature. And I live in a contemporary society where humans are doing what humans do whether it's being kind to one another or unkind. And every once in a while I come across an article in the news or there's something that's happening in the world and it's very influential in what I do. Uh, for instance, um, there was a couple of years where I created artwork where I transformed guns into something else. Initially, a church came to me and asked me would I transform a gun into a garden tool and out of that, you know, kind of a whole world opened up in the next two years where people came to me and they wanted me to destroy and transform their guns and turn them into something else. I'm influenced by the music scene to a degree here and the, you know, the innovation that happens. Atlanta has been good to me and I have given back in many ways. I will say there's somewhat of a legacy that is left. If you believe that metal is somewhat permanent, I created a number of permanent site-specific sculptures um, in the city of Smyrna, the city of Sandy Springs, the city of Roswell, the city of Atlanta, the city of Decatur, and many outlying uh, states as well. But those are some of the, the top places that I have public works. Some of my favorite places to see art in Atlanta, of course the High Museum. I'm a member. I've been a longtime member of the High Museum. I also love during the pandemic that they have these wonderful dance parties. I love movement and dance and music and people jiving to music is just makes my heart sing. So I love the High Museum. I love the Friday nights that are there. I oftentimes love the art that is shown at the Museum of Contemporary Art Georgia. My gallery is the Spalding Nicks Fine Art and I love the art that they show. It's a interesting cross-section of contemporary artists um, from all different veins and I have always really loved the Marsha Wood Gallery and Susan Bridges White Space. I'm a big fan of much of the work that's shown at Sandler Hudson and of course um, Mason Fine Art and September Gray. Kevin Sipp is always doing something wonderful and creative in Gallery 72 with the City of Atlanta and Mint shows some wonderful work up-and-coming artists, kind of that spice that you don't always get in um, every other gallery. I had a solo exhibition at the Spalding Nicks Fine Art this summer, and it was a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, mixed media sculpture, predominantly um, forged bronze and forged uh, copper, forged and formed copper, um, as well as some paintings and some steel sculptures. So um, their work is, the work from that show is archived on their website, um, spaldingnicksfineart.com. Metal artist Corinna Sephora and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Sephora and her work 
are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., actor, comedian, and author Phoebe Robinson stars in the new show, Everything's Trash. We'll listen back to my conversation with the dope queen herself about her 2021 book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.